Today's Real Fiction episode is a re-air of a conversation from this summer. As President-elect Joe Biden announces cabinet nominees, eyes turn to a familiar name. Former Iowa Governor Tom Vilsack will likely return to his old job at the Department of Agriculture. Why exactly do Iowa governors tend to land in this agency and as ambassador to China? As I learned in a conversation with journalist Mara Vistendahl, the state of Iowa is at the heart of international food supply and therefore national security. But first, a reminder about the importance of supporting local media. Civic engagement begins with your voice, and Arlington Independent Media and WERA 96.7 FM give area residents a way to amplify that voice by providing access to media training and professional production equipment and facilities. The grassroots leaders who are fighting to make the world a better place for everyone need your support to succeed. As we say around Arlington Independent Media, raise your voice. Now more than ever, Arlington's rich diversity of voices need to be heard. Support open dialogue and activism in your community by making a tax-deductible donation at arlingtonmedia.org. That's arlingtonmedia, one word, dot org. I'll be back in a moment with my conversation with Mara Vistendahl. So for a lot of people, this, this might come as a surprise, but Iowa actually gets at a lot of the thorny issues in U.S.-China relations. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Mara Vistendahl was a journalist working in Shanghai, China, when a news headline caught her attention. A Chinese scientist was arrested for stealing seeds in an Iowa cornfield. Vistendahl spent years retracing the steps of this scientist and the industrial espionage scheme to reverse engineer the designer corn seeds growing in the Midwest. Attempts to steal agriculture technology are now treated as a matter of national security. And this summer, seeds became a matter of widespread suspicion as hundreds of mysterious seed packets with Chinese labels arrived in the United States. Mara Vistendahl is an investigative reporter with The Intercept and the author of The Scientist and the Spy, a true story of China, the FBI, and industrial espionage. For eight years, Mara was based in Shanghai, where she worked as China Bureau Chief for Science Magazine. Her first book, Unnatural Selection, was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Mara Vistendahl joins me from Minneapolis to discuss her work. Mara, welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you for having me on the show. Maybe we should start with uh, the headline that grabbed your attention nearly 10 years ago. In early fall of 2011, some authorities in Iowa 
I encountered three Chinese men trespassing in a cornfield, and they were looking for hybrid seed samples. You were living in Shanghai when you saw a headline in the New York Times, and that headline was, Designer Seed Thought to Be the Latest Target by Chinese. And since that time, you have spent years investigating the origins and implications of that incident. What was the first thing that struck you about that story when you saw that headline? Well, my job in China was to report on science, and I spent a lot of time with scientists there looking into the good and the bad of uh, research collaborations and research scandals. And so then when I saw that headline, I I was just drawn to the story. Um, I'm from the Midwest. This is the area that I was reporting on in China. And you know, it also made me think of a, a scene from Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest, um, where Cary Grant's character is, is um, besieged in a cornfield. And, and so I um, wondered what was going on in that case. And it just hooked me and I and ended up spending years retracing the story. You mentioned that you were born in the Midwest. I, I was as well. And, and then you lived in China for several years. Before we talk about your new book, what what actually drew you to uh, working in China? You could have worked anywhere, but you landed in Shanghai. How did that piece of your life come together? I had studied Chinese and my family, um, various members of my family had worked in and out of China. And so when I graduated from journalism school, it just seemed like the logical place to start out. And I was lucky to be there at a, at a very interesting period in China's development. Things were changing very rapidly. Um, there was a lot of hope for the future. There was also a lot going on beneath the surface. Um, you know, I've reported on corruption, on uh, money-making schemes and so forth. And so I, I, it was a, just a, a great introduction to all of these aspects of reporting all at once. You had a, a broad range of subjects you were covering, but agriculture, which is the basis of the science and the spy, was not necessarily a core of your reporting at, in those early days. That's right. I I mainly spent a lot of time with scientists, you know, going into the field with them. And by the field, I mean you know, going on archaeological digs, not going into the cornfield. You know, I visited um, one of China's now only two biosafety level four labs, uh, which has really become an international issue um, because of the pandemic. Uh, so during a, a previous outbreak, I, I went to one of those labs. And so it was really, a, you know, just a fascinating tour of all these different aspects of, of Chinese science. But then when I read about this case in the cornfield, I was just fascinated by, here's this man named Robert Mo who had a scientific background and he actually had two PhDs and had moved to the United States um, to seek a better life and um, do his research. And then he ended up getting caught up in, in this immense international case uh, with an FBI investigation that lasted years. Um, at one point, the FBI 
flew surveillance planes overhead to watch Robert and his colleagues as they kind of drove around the Midwest looking for corn seed. And and so just this kind of larger than life case and the scientist at the center of it. And and that's really what what drives the story. Now, was Robert Moe, whose name on his um, official licenses was listed as a uh, name, Long Moe, was his name listed in the um, original New York Times article? He was named in that article. Okay. Robert Moe worked for a Beijing agricultural company called DBN. DBN had this scheme to collect seeds from across the Midwest, bring them back to China, reverse engineer the original varieties, and then bring them to market as their own seeds. Right. So the backdrop is that this happened at a time when the FBI was was putting a big emphasis on industrial espionage from China. Um, that's only heightened since then, and it's now a major issue between in the tensions between the two countries. So you know, this is one of, of dozens or hundreds of cases that would play out over the years that right. followed. Um, and I realized that by telling the story of this kind of crazy corn seed case, I could also look at look at this general shift toward criminalizing trade secrets theft. The reverse engineering that you get into in the book is fascinating. And I would not have thought that it would be such a page turner (laughs) going through all of these um, intricate details, but you really got into the technology of the seeds. And Robert Moe, as you mentioned, was working for DBN um, in China, but he was a Florida-based scientist. And one of the things that I just kept thinking about as I read the book is, how does a well-intentioned scientist who is curious about the world and passionate about science um, make that pivot to what we call economic espionage or industrial espionage? Sure. Um, so this book is really character driven. I, you know, I write narrative nonfiction. I wanted it to be a page turner and a gripping story. And I was lucky to find these very compelling figures at the center of the corn seed case. Yes. Um, so I set out to to really literally retrace all of the steps in the case, you know, crisscrossing the Midwest, going through the cornfields that Robert Moe had been found in and had visited himself. I spent a long time talking with him and also talking with the FBI agent and with this American farmer who was also kind of uh, caught in the middle of the story. And Robert Moe had this kind of classic academic story where he had finished his second PhD and was looking for a job and, uh, you know, study position teaching and could not find a tenure track position. Um, So he turned to a life of crime, essentially. I mean, he, he took his job with a, with a Beijing company that, you know, initially he was doing fairly legal activities but then more and more it veered into the illegal and his boss said, well, you know, why don't you go ste- steal a few seeds? Uh, why don't you go take a few seeds from, from cornfields in, in Iowa? And then that turned into more and more seeds. And then there was a, you know, then there was this discussion about getting hundreds of seed varieties 
he's an interesting character because he's a suburban father who you know, wants a better life for his kids, takes this job, hoping to make enough money to pay the mortgage and give his kids a good education. And then he ends up kind of spiraling uh, deeper and deeper into this criminal saga. One of the joys of, in reading creative nonfiction like this, where you have a character like Robert Moe is envisioning his life and envisioning how he grew up. And it's obvious that you had some uh, some pretty incredible interviews with him and were able to kind of get get some of his backstory. I would love to hear something about a discovery you made when researching the book, because it says a lot about how young Chinese view, view the world, I think. You write that um, as a young man, Robert Moe loved reading Sherlock Holmes. And he was living in a remote part of China. And to me, it was, first of all, it's remarkable that these books passed the censor test in China. And you really use it to illustrate his inclination for curiosity, science, forensic analysis. And there's this incredible uh, scene when he's actually digging for seeds and you kind of recreate that um, image of him as a kind of Sherlock Holmes figure. Yeah, the story of Sherlock Holmes in China is really fascinating. Just as background, he was growing up in the 1960s and 70s. So, you know, this was a time when literature was heavily censored. But Sherlock Sherlock Holmes had first been translated into Chinese in the 1900s. It had a big fan base. Somehow um, got this kind of proletarian spin during the Cultural Revolution, uh, in which it was recast as a as a revolutionary story, and so you know people were allowed to read it, and he um, he just devoured it and knew from a very young age that he wanted to be a scientist and that he had that sort of mind. You know, actually, when you talk about characters, I I. I then later in my reporting found that there was this um, this man named Kevin who's a farmer and a seed breeder in Illinois who had been thrust into the middle of this this whole investigation um, where he had taken contract work for DBN. So he had a lot of contact with Robert and um, later became an FBI informant. And he had a similar sort of approach to life, and there were actually a lot of parallels between him and Robert, and I thought it was interesting to um, to explore some of those parallels. You have a, a remark in the book that says that industrial espionage is old as ancient Greece. I'm certainly guilty of thinking about industrial espionage as, you know, 5G, very high-tech issues. Reading this book has really changed my own definition. I really see agriculture and food as much as a national security issue as as anything else we're dealing with. Um, And you do talk about um, the, what I I think the quote is, there's a frenzy for success in China, and also an attempt to find research shortcuts. Now, in general, while China may lead the world in some areas of technology, is it fair to say that they are about a generation behind the United States and other countries when it comes to seeds and agricultural research? 
In agriculture, yes, because it's, it's an it's a long term game. Uh, it's very hard to just kind of catch up in in five to ten years. Right, and so there are some areas where where Chinese research is just excellent. Um, but agriculture, you really need a good stock of seeds, uh, which China doesn't have for the most part. And you know, and also the market is dominated by companies like Monsanto. And uh, Monsanto is now owned, ironically, by a German company. So this American corporation that the, the U.S. government spent uh, years protecting uh, is now is now left our borders and is, is no longer American. Hmm. Hmm. That that really is something to think about. Um, well, we we have longstanding relations in terms of US agribusiness and China. And I think we while we know that I, you know, reading your, your book brings some really fascinating details to light. I, For example, I was surprised that the current Chinese president has been visiting Iowa since 1985. Um, and he actually stayed in a local home, staying in the, the son's basement with like football posters on the wall. And he's known Terry Branstad, who's the who was the longtime governor of Iowa, and is the current ambassador to China. So what what sort of things did you uncover about the dynamics of that relationship? So for a lot of people, this, this might come as a surprise, but Iowa actually gets at a lot of the thorny issues in U.S.-China relations. I mean, you have this longstanding friendship on the one hand, but then you have the the corn theft case, um, the the trade war that right. that Trump brought that disproportionately affected Iowa farmers and you know China's a ma- or sorry Iowa is a major exporter of um, grain and pork to China in in normal times and so that's been kind of a flashpoint in the in the relationship and I don't think I can emphasize enough how much the relationship between the two countries has deteriorated in the past few months since the start of the pandemic. It seems like every week that there is a new order or a new um, policy on either the Chinese or the U.S. side that is that affects the dynamic. Back to our main uh, character here, um, Robert Mo. Um, he was prosecuted for his exploration and digging and digging up seeds in the fields. One of the things that you uncovered um, when you were researching his case is the connection between the sort of secretive FISA warrants that, that we have in this country and his case. And you described a kind of trend of mission creep, uh, particularly as corn and other products like corn have become a matter of national security. What would you like the reader to think about in terms of um, national security and FISA warrants as it relates to Robert Moe's case? Well, this case happened as as the FBI has been in the 
midst of a transition from uh, being a law enforcement, a strictly law enforcement agency to a counterintelligence organization. That's something that started after September 11th and has only escalated since then. Mm. So where the FBI is now running these very complex counterintelligence investigations uh, in into Chinese entities, and some of them are run out of Iowa and Nebraska and in areas where you know the average agent may not have that much um, connection to China or experience with China. So these are very complex efforts. Um, in Robert Moore's case, there was a FISA warrant used, which is a very um, unusual application of FISA. That's a it's a warrant that's supposed to be reserved for really extreme national security threats, although it's right. it's often leniently interpreted. And it, it's so secretive that its defense counsel, for example, is not able to um, determine exactly what was investigated or what communications were obtained using FISA or even who the subject of the warrant is. So it could be that Robert communicated with somebody who was under investigation, and then that's how they used FISA in his case. Mm. Um, you know, this is just a very, very secretive area. But the use of FISA does underscore the degree to which the U.S. government argues that this is a national security threat, and you know, that's something that many people have pushed back on. When we talk about Robert Moe's case in particular, you spent a lot of time thinking about what what it means to prosecute an individual and how do we think about this in in big, large terms? And you kind of likened it to the war on drugs and is prosecuting an individual like Robert Moe really effective? Yeah, so the risk with just focusing on individuals like Robert Moe is that it's it's almost like going off after the drug runners in, in the war on drugs. Like you get the people on the street corners, but the cartels are still running in the background. Exactly. And it also brings up the risk that individuals could be targeted unfairly. So, you know, until economic espionage became a federal crime in the 1990s, trade secrets theft cases had all been handled by companies. So, you know, if Monsanto suspected that a company had stolen its seeds, it would just sue that company. And and the companies often do sue each other. Um, It happens, it's just a a feature of the business world. But now that industrial espionage is seen as a national security threat, um, these are federal investigations where the US government is taking on the full cost of investigating, um, where the FBI is expending resources on the investigations. And you know, so we have to ask whether the payoff of sending people to prison and, you know, whether that is a deterrent to future people committing, to people committing crimes in the future, and also whether that expense is worth it. One of the things that's come sort of into the news in a fresh way, um, just in the last um, few weeks, there were mysterious seed packets that um, arrived in the United States, um, believed to be from China, and there were a number of warnings um, from experts indicating, do not plant these seeds. Do you have a sense of uh, what these seeds are, where they came from, and uh, what, if anything, research um, universities like Iowa State have to say about about this. 
So hundreds of people across the country got these packets of seeds and all around the same time, um, the internet went a little crazy. People were suggesting that it could be Chinese-made bioweapons. Um, I heard from many readers saying, oh, this is, sounds like it's out of your book. <laughs> and Exactly. Um, I, you know, I think the truth is is probably a little disappointing that it's it's not a bioweapon as far as we can tell. Um, USDA has tested some of the seeds and found that they're rosemary and sage and mint. And hmm. <laughs> I think what's happening is, is that it's an Amazon review scheme. So for Amazon sellers, Amazon's always Amazon has been a place for years where where sellers have been able to post fake reviews of their own product. And now in order to post a verified review, you need to have shipped the product to an address. And so if they have an address in the United States and they can ship the seeds to that product, to that, sorry, if they can ship the seeds to that address, um, they can then post a fake review. And I mean, it sounds extremely elaborate, but since the start of the pandemic, many people have bought seeds on Amazon. Uh, my own mother has gone on there and bought you know, many, many seeds. She's an avid gardener. Um, I think the larger story is why is USDA and Amazon allowing um, people to just order seeds from overseas and bring them in? It speaks to the uh, the paranoia and the confusion, and um, we hear seeds, and and now we're all just a bit nervous. So that's a a very good uh, review and explanation. And I just want to say again, remind um, listeners that um, speaking with uh, Mara Vistendahl, she is the author of The Scientist and the Spy, was just released earlier this year by Riverhead Books. It's an imprint of Penguin Random House. You know when I. Two things that stayed with me after finishing this book. Um, when Robert Moe is receiving his sentencing, um, the judge in the case um, really kind of captured very nicely, I think, what what happened to Robert Moe and what you have illuminated in this book, which is that this story started with a man in a field looking for seeds, but it grew into something that internationally is an enormous case for China and the U.S. And then you also have this wonderful reference to an inscription at the former Des Moines Public Library, which is that food is the moral right of all who are born into this world. And my goodness, do you leave us with a lot to think about um, in terms of national security and what it means to feed the world? Um, when you finished this book, which um, took years, how how do you sort of sum this up in your mind when you think about food and national security? Well, I'm still fascinated by the fact that this man who was found in a Iowa cornfield um, became the trigger for this international investigation, and you know the the case uh, was mentioned by Mike Pompeo quite recently, and. Uh, it's still cited by U.S. government officials as as a big success. Um, I talked to a number of people in Iowa who don't view it that way. I don't think um, people, certainly people close to Robert Moe don't view it that way. He's now in an immigration detention facility awaiting deportation and, and you know, in COVID, in the 
time of COVID, that's a, that's a very difficult place to be. But ultimately, it's a window into this period in U.S.-China relations when there just was a, a, the seeds of a rapid decline. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is just amazing to think about these little seeds that are planted in a field and the impact that this has for two big superpower countries. And the story is remarkable, and it is a page-turning thriller. So I invite listeners to um, think about this book, particularly now we're in such a difficult phase with, with China. I want to thank you for taking the time to share your observations about what you've discovered over the years and, and what we're finding on a day-to-day basis with these new headlines. So it's been very enlightening. So I thank you so much for joining the program today. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, streaming on WERA.FM. And you can find all episodes archived on realfictionradio.com and your favorite podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.